This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, save everything. There's a museum in Philadelphia with drawers of almost 2,500 objects, all swallowed by kids. Buttons, small toys, a school pin for perfect attendance. The objects were retrieved by a doctor, Dr. Chevalier Quixote Jackson, and put on display so others could learn how you best remove a potentially deadly foreign body. In Foreign Bodies, her latest poetry collection, Kimiko Han takes this story of objects lost and recovered to tell her own. Kimiko Han grew up in Pleasantville, New York, in a household that revolved around art. Her parents were artists who enrolled both Han and her sister in lots of different classes, from painting to dance to music, and her childhood home was filled with art catalogs and paint supplies. But after the sudden death of her mother almost 30 years ago, their home changed. Her father had a hard time throwing things away. At some point, he wouldn't let his daughters come inside anymore. They only entered the house after he died, three and a half years ago, to try and pick through the stuff that was covering the floors. Han says about that process that it was a kind of recovery, an excavation of things from our childhood. I recently talked to Kimiko Han about her new collection. Here's our conversation. I wanted to ask you about foreign bodies, but I also wanted to go back a little bit further first because um, foreign bodies is so full with objects. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the first thing I wanted to know was, is there an object from your childhood that had a powerful hold on you? Um, Something almost, you know, talismanic for Mm you? Huh. Wow. Um, no, I'd really have to think of that for a while. Um, I mean, there were objects that were important to me. And of course, I had various junk drawers where these objects lived. The first thing that came to mind, though, was one Christmas, I got a little children's safe with an actual combination lock. I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or nine, um, seven or eight. I don't know. Old enough to use a combination lock. Right. Um, (laughs) And I can't remember what I put in it, but there are probably talismanic important objects. (laughs) But in Japan, we uh, we lived in Japan for a year and Mm -hmm. there's a game. They look like flat marbles. They're these like little flat round shapes of glass with you know, almost like a flume of paint. And some friends there taught me how to play with them. And it is like marbles. You sort of drop yeah. them down and shoot them through. Um, and they seem so important that when I bought some for myself, I didn't even take them out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> they're probably somewhere around <laughs> or maybe they just they're maybe they're still in my father's house somewhere 
buried. <laughs> Whoever bought yeah. that house, I don't know what they did with it, but um, <laughs> all the all the leftover stuff. Um, but maybe that comes close. Yeah. And why do you think your parents gave you a little safe? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I mean, my sister got one too. My younger, mm. uh, she's younger than I am, and. I don't know, maybe we were squabbling too much or something. <laughs> Let's just yeah. keep these things separate. There are some things that yeah. only belong to you. I don't know. Yeah. But I love that idea. I mean, it's so fantastic because I think I don't have kids, but just from sort of observing my friends' kids, this development of, you know, marking your territory and being like, this is mine. You know, no one else can touch that. Right. It's so strong. It's so strong. And so it's funny that your your parents sort of took it to the next level and we're like, fine, you can lock it up in a safe. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Who knows what they were thinking? Maybe they were just happened to be on sale. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and did you spend a lot of time alone as a kid? just sort of doing or thinking your own thing? I did, um, mostly because the house we lived in was on the outskirts of town. I had a good friend who lived next door, a year older, so I'd play with her a lot as a child, but uh, we also fought like two little kittens. We were just always squabbling, and she moved away. Mm -hmm. Um, as I got older, I did spend more and more time by myself because everybody else was lived far away, half a mile, mile away. And, uh, it was not a convenient walk to get anywhere and, you know, a little treacherous walking or even riding a bike. And I didn't want to ask my parents to drive me around everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And then by the time I got to high school, I kind of took myself out of, pretty much took myself out of socializing. So I really did spend a lot of time by myself, except for a boyfriend in New York City. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so a little precocious there, but um, yeah, but not 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 so much school friends. I I was a little uh, I felt vulnerable. I probably looked like I was conceited or something. What does that mean again? Um, you know, that I was kind of full of myself, that I thought I was better than everybody else, but that wasn't it at all. I I was actually felt very vulnerable. Um, so I would eat lunch alone and stuff like that. Yeah. And did you have something, you know something you like to do where you could express yourself and and bloom instead of feel vulnerable well uh listen to music <laughs> um mm -hmm. <laughs> this in the let's see i went to high school in the early 70s so there was plenty of terrific rock and roll um listen to music read and write um, and also, I grew up in a family of, of visual artists, so my sister and I were always doing sort of crafty things. So, you know, tie-dyeing T-shirts, because I was a hippie. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Making love beads, because I was a hippie. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Wait, and tie dyeing that was like in the bathtub, or where did you do on that? On the stove. On the stove. Ah. It was boiling water and then putting the dye in. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What were you tie dyeing? Was that shirts or was that you uh, know shirts? things to hang on the wall? No, sh- uh, outfits. Yes, outfits, yes. shirts, yeah. and skirts, and yeah. And I would uh, either use rubber bands, or uh-huh. I would stitch and pull, and then wind the thread, thick thread around the the pull, the pulled fabric. And was this whole <laughs> hippie thing was that aesthetic for you, or or did you also have an inkling? about the politics of it it was aesthetic it was a uh, social statement um by my boyfriend in the city um my sister and i took japanese language and dance from the time we were uh fairly young and so i met my my boyfriend because he is he's japanese american and he was also in Japanese language class with me. He was a real radical, though. I mean, he, so I was introduced to politics and grassroots organizing and the movement and Marxism and all that stuff in high school. And it was pretty heady, pretty attractive. <laughs> yeah. I, my parents couldn't believe it. Like, oh my God. We just wanted you to learn Japanese. <laughs> oh great. dear! And what did you do with that newfound domain of life? You know, was that like discussion groups? Did you read a lot? Was it just sitting around and listening to other people debate the future of the world, or like what? You know, what shape did it take? Well, I really only saw him on Saturdays when I was taking Japanese language class and dance. Um, but I would read things that he recommended. Um, I recently thought of reading uh, Sout Existentialism and really not understanding a word of it. <laughs> so, you know, just trying to understand yeah. what was going on. And I did go to some of his meetings and listen to mm-hmm. uh people hold forth and organize. And that was, that was very exciting. Um, one of the people I met during that period too was, uh, her name was Aichi Kochiyama and her mother, Yuri Kochiyama was a very, very big deal in the movement. Yeah. And in fact, when Malcolm X was assassinated, she was there in the Audubon ballroom with him. Mm -hmm. Um, and held him as he uh, lay dying. So there are some extraordinary people who I met uh, when I was quite young. Yeah. And did you, I mean, since you didn't grow up with that kind of discourse at home, or or even the practice of debating, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the state of the country or something, that it was more focused on art and, and crafts, did you feel intimidated by it at all? I'm sure I did, but I was also at that point in my life, you know, with a, a feminism and so forth and the original edition of Our Bodies Ourselves and, and really coming into my own, I 
was feeling pretty assertive. Mm -hmm. So I did feel uh, intimidated, but, but also assertive. And I think my boyfriend at the time was also very good in including and encouraging me. Um, <clears throat> I feel that in high school, or for most of my K through 12, that I really wasn't, uh, I think in the town I grew up in, we weren't encouraged to think analytically, not deeply. Uh -huh. I mean, we were really encouraged to think enough to take and pass tests and to get into college, if that's what we yeah. wanted. But it wasn't until I really went to Marxist study groups after college that I began to think more analytically for myself, and also that I realized I was required to have an opinion as part of this group, hmm. and I was being asked for my opinion, and that was very powerful, actually. To have to speak up, I had to speak up. Yeah. I, I'm so intrigued by that. But, I, I mean, one of the reasons I'm intrigued by that is is I, I come from a family that seems in that regard, at least, very similar. Uh, mm -hmm. There was only art at home. That was the only real reality. Mm -hmm. Everything else was just sort of not worthy of Absolutely. conversation, you know? Right? And yeah. yeah, so this thing that you said about analytical thinking, I feel to a certain degree like I still don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to, if if it can be taught to think analytically. Do you feel like you you got to a place where you actually could? Is that something that can be learned? I I feel I did. Um, I mean, I really I, I really was in study groups where we studied dialectics. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, Mar Marxist dialectics and to look at what sort of contradictions come up and what does that mean both in a discussion but also in looking just around us. And so I was given a tool which I could use and then later accept or develop or uh, reject. But just just being given a tool to use, was uh, tremendous, tremendously powerful for me. Um, and I use it to this day. I, 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 it's still a little abstract to me. Like, can you uh, give me an example of like, what was the thing, for instance, that you would look at in the real world? And what would it mean to look at it through a dialectic lens? Oh, huh. okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, even if you look at the police today, yeah, and so dialectical thinking might be to see something objectively, right? Mm -hmm. The police mm -hmm. are being paid by taxpayers to protect people and property. Um, subjectively, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes they are outside the law, even. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what I mean. I, I look at things objectively, what is supposed to happen, and then look at the reality, what does happen? Mm. And where does that happen? Why this contradiction? 
I mean, you can see the incredible contradiction in the attack on the Capitol, where you had some people who were part of that sedition crowd. They were actually, uh, some were police officers, some were army or ex-army, and they were attacking people who were there to protect and trying to protect. They were there trying to do their job. So that's a very interesting contradiction. Yeah. Uh, But that's how I look at things. That's really interesting. I love that. I mean, it sounds very simple when you describe Mm -hmm. it. Just state how, you know, what it's supposed to be objectively and Mm -hmm. then see how reality deviates. That seems very manageable, you know? It is. It is very simple. And um, I'm actually teaching a craft class right now at Queens College, uh, graduate class on poetic closure. It's a theory that Barbara Hernstein Smith wrote about in 1964. And when I read it as a graduate student, it completely impacted and has influenced the way I read, write, or and at least revise. I wouldn't say write, I'd say revise, read, revise, mm-hmm. and also teach. And one thing I love about it um well, a number of things I love about it. One is that it's a theory that's very experientially bound. Uh, it, it, it's a theory that has all sorts of psychological and emotional dimensions, which I think is important to art. I mean, it's not just a cerebral exercise, right? Yeah. And basically, it's looking at repetition. What kind of repetition do you see? being launched in by the title and the beginning of the poem and throughout. And then where is the deviation that might mm. signal the closure? So again, it's repetition and deviation. That's a contradiction. Wow, that is incredible how similar they are and mm-hmm. how, again, it allows you I mean, it, it, what is so pleasing about this is that it is a very simple tool that allows you to see complexity. Yes. Yeah, it, it completely does. This theory is just brilliant. Well, would you would you be open to reading one of your poems and then talk me through it, you know, how this theory of closure comes up in this particular poem. Is that something that you'd want to do? Um, sure. I'm trying to think what I, which one. Uh, I mean, I, I, there's one that I was thinking of because oh, actually okay. the closure really intrigued me. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about that. Okay. Um, it's the one called Foreign Body uh, okay. on page 55. Before you read it, though, there was also a version on the Poetry Foundation website, but it was a little bit different. And yes. so I don't know which one you prefer. Uh, I'll read the one uh, since I have my book in front of me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there anything you want to say before you read it? I would just say that although the story of Shivai Quixote Jackson and the objects that he took out of children's upper respiratory system, those foreign bodies, although that initiated for me the phrase in what would become a collection, Mm -hmm. I at some point realized that I wanted to 
explore the phrase in other areas, immigration, the immigrant's body, and also my grandmother, my mother, and my body. So my mother and I were born here in the United States, but visually people have mistaken us for being foreign. So, yeah. Foreign body. This is a poem on my other's body. I mean, my mother's body. I mean the one who saved her braid of blue-black hair in a drawer. I mean the one I could lean against, against as in insistence, fuzzy dress of wuzzy one, red lipstick one, rubber gloves one, her one to me, bad jur, bad jur, or so I heard. The one body I write on, her sun-flecked body as she bathed in the afternoon. Was I five? It was summer, then winter, where today I call the unlacked bathroom to mind. I cannot leave her body alone, which is how I found mother escaping the heat of a 1950s house, father on a ladder with blowtorch to scrape the paint off the outside. Badger, badger. The sun in those suburbs simmered the tar roof over our rooms, in the town where the wasps lived, inside paper cells beneath both eaves and roots. They sing, I mean, sting very much, the wasps. Now I'm sixty, sweet as dried papaya, my hair a bit tarnished, my inmost null. Memory is falling away, as if an image shattered to shards, then recollected for a kaleidoscope. I click the pieces into sharp arrangement. Bad, bad, girl, girl. In turn, a daughter turns sovereign. Thank you. Thanks. Um, well, um, what can I say about this? <laughs> well, do you want to first talk about the repetitions? Sure, yeah. I mean, that. I mean, one repetition is very directly about language mm-hmm. and making mistakes and speaking, sort of what I guess what we call Freudian slips, right? My other's body, where I say, I mean my mother's body, and that happens again. They sing, I mean, sting very much. Um, so there are mishearings in the poem, but then the biggest mishearing is by the child who hears badger. She thinks she hears the mother saying badger, the animal, Yeah. but in fact it's bad girl, <laughs> which she resolves in the end by saying bad, bad girl, girl. Yeah. Um, I'd say the dominant repetition is expression, misunderstanding, I suppose, and coming to some kind of resolution. Um, huh, the ending. Um, no. Memory is falling away, as if an image shattered to shards, then recollected for a kaleidoscope. I click the pieces into sharp arrangement. Bad, bad, girl, girl. In turn, a daughter 
turns sovereign. You know, I like my endings lately, although they don't all do this, to have some element of sound, um, kind of a constellation of sounds. And so I think one thing about sovereign that I liked is that the N repeats turn, turn, sovereign. Mm. Um, that the next generation will be more uh, powerful or more empowered, mm. more empowered, let me say. That's where I wanted it to land, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was intrigued by that ending also because I first read the version that was on the Poetry website. And in that version, that last sentence is a little bit different. Um, I can't remember. What is it? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you. So, it's, you know, I'll start from the, the, the top of that verse. I click the pieces into sharp arrangements. Grouse, crow, craven. No, now my own daughter turns sovereign. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this version, there's no uh, crow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that end, all of a sudden, turn. it's almost as if a car has been turning around this <laughs> roundabout and all yeah. of a sudden shoof, it goes into a road you know in turn a daughter turns sovereign and so can you talk about like that theory of closure sort of how those repetitions can lead you to that turn well the mother the repetition of mother and then the relationship and then and then coming to realize that badger was bad girl but in that realization feeling empowered i guess um i'm not necessarily the most reliable (laughs) person to speak about my own poems um (laughs) um, hopefully i'm not the most reliable (laughs) um so i guess in terms of closure i realized that the animals that I had in the penultimate line, although I like playing with the word craven because it is not an animal. <laughs> it just sounds like an animal. Does, I, yeah. I wanted to hold on to that, but I realized that that's not where the poem was going, that I had to bring the badger some kind of resolution with that. That you had to bring the badger back because you that was where the poem was pushing you. That's where the poem was going, yeah. Yeah, that is so interesting. And I love that you also make the distinction between the writing phase and the revision phase, that this theory of closure is something you only use when revising so that you don't let it um, guide you while you're writing. I think that's really interesting. Uh, How do you separate those? Because how can you separate things in your own mind that are already there? Yeah, it is hard. Um, I think one has to trick oneself into getting into your own raw material. But it's tricking, right? You have to trick yourself into it, I think. Yeah. I had a student who was way overthinking her drafts. She actually was revising as she wrote. And I said, oh, no, 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 (laughs) don't do that for your early draft, please. 
because her work was interesting, but just really too tight. Uh-huh. So she came up with writing on her cell phone in the subway. And it really, it really changed. Just sort of blew open. Oh, so the cell phone is just to make it seem as if it's no big deal. No big deal. I thought we could just go back to a poem. It's the one called A Dusting. It's on page 15. And I don't know if you want to say something about it before you read it. Well, <laughs> um, I don't believe that there is uh, a heaven or there is any life after death. But I remember once in one of my first teaching gigs, <laughs> I had a student whose friend had just died. And he said he felt that one day, wherever his friend is, he'll be with him too. And that was very comforting to hear. My mother had recently died, and that was very comforting. Um, and when I said that to my my husband a few years ago, he said, what does that even mean? <laughs> he, he couldn't, he couldn't understand what I was trying to express. And for me, it, it's very clear. My mother may be nothing and I'll be nothing with her. And he said, well, if you're nothing, you can't be nothing with her. I said, well, but I will be. If she's dust, then I'm also dust. So that's where <laughs> That's sort of the long explanation of where this poem came from. <laughs> That's beautiful. <clears throat> A dusting. However, mother has reappeared, say, as motes on a feather duster. Scientists say the galaxy was thus created. This daybreak, she seeds a cumulus cloud. Wherever mother is bound, she's joined ashes, ashes, or dirt underfoot, or bits off tower north and tower south. Repurpose does not arrive whole cloth. Thank you. I was struck by the number of references to dust and to clouds mm -hmm. that dotted your collection. And... Uh, Yeah, in this poem, of course, it's obvious that there is a connection with grief and with where the people we lose go mm -hmm. and how we find them again. Yeah. But I was also struck by, I mean, this is this is so playful, right? Like the, mm -hmm. you know, however mother has reappeared, say as motes on a feather duster. <laughs> it, only you can say that, right? Like no one else could say that about your mother. Right. That would right. be horribly right. insulting, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just so struck by the way that you bring play into grief. And I was wondering if you want to talk about th that. Well, for this poem, I actually did some uh, 
research on different kinds of dust, <laughs> um, <laughs> even other poems where dust appears. And so it the poem almost functions as a list of where we find dust. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the poem as having a kind of list element to it, then some of those elements are bound to be humorous or sad or maybe even um, upsetting. <laughs> yeah. you, with a list structure, you can hit different notes. Uh-huh. And that's what I like. I like to hit those different notes in a single piece. Yeah. But the language play is very important to my poetics. Mm-hmm. It comes in part from Japanese aesthetics and the value that Japanese put on multiple meanings. You know, we think of puns as being humorous or witty, but mm-hmm. in fact, they're, they're very sophisticated. It's a very sophisticated way to play and also to have a poem move more spatially as opposed to a more linear meaning. Uh-huh. So when I'm looking at a draft, I want to be able to see if I can explode the language open a little bit with wordplay. Yeah, I'm just so interested in the poetics of punning or playing and sort of almost purposely send the reader in the, I, I want to say wrong direction. Of mm-hmm. course, it isn't. It's just another direction, you know. But but of course, if you're going in one direction, it will feel wrong for a second. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, is this something you have to do on purpose? Get yourself out of the the rails that you're on? Or is that something that just happened automatically? If it is something you do on purpose, how do you do that? <laughs> um, uh, part of it is an awareness, just because I've written, because <laughs> I've written so much over the years. Yeah. Part of it is an awareness, you know, that I love language play, and so I'm I'm very open to it. I guess. The answer would be, I'm very open to that kind of language play. I mean, honestly, it's like uh, it's like flirting, hmm. right? In high school or college, whenever I would watch Mae West movies, she was uh, very uh, coy and uh, sometimes even vulgar in the way she'd flirt with men. Her come-ons were incredible. And that is so much fun. And that is the same part of the brain <laughs> that one uses, you know, to sort of um, tease, if you will. Uh-huh. Tease and flirt and have that double entendre, you know, um, leaving things open. <laughs> <laughs> I love this metaphor, by the way. And so to push it a little further, mm-hmm. who are you flirting with? Is it with the words or is it with the reader? Uh, I'd say it's with, um, I'd say it's with the reader. 
ultimately it's with the reader. It's first just playing and having fun, but ultimately it's with the reader. It's an invitation. Yeah, I I was wondering if we can get to one last poem. It's the one called Unearthly Delights, and it's the one that opens your book, Foreign Bodies. And yeah, again, if if you want to say something before you start. I wrote this poem because a poet and editor was putting together a collection that responded to Bosch and Bruegel, I believe. Unfortunately, he never found a publisher, but I did write this poem. <laughs> <laughs> Good for so, us. <laughs> yeah, so I was lucky he gave me that assignment. I love assignments, so I was lucky for that. Mm-hmm. Unearthly Delights. After you rip the screen, excuse me, I'm going to start again. Maybe before you start again, then, can I ask you to say maybe a little bit about your father and the context in which this was written? Sure. Um, My father was a hoarder. Growing up, my sister and I thought, oh, it's because, you know, he grew up in the Depression and you want to save everything. But in fact, after my mother died, began to accumulate more and more things and soon it was just literally junk junk mail and the house was a mess and he wouldn't let us in to help him with anything Mm -hmm. so when he died we had to go in there and deal with both the junk but also his artwork his things that he had collected real treasures. Yeah. So that's where this speaker is. <laughs> Unearthly delights. After you rip through the screen and wedge yourself into father's bedroom, you find a pile of art supply catalogs, brown scraps of bedspread, cotton batting, a rodent body, rodent turds, and tiny white naked human creatures flipped topsy-turvy to skewer down the ass and out the mouth in the primordial ooze that is manifestly the brimstone and bile of this book left open to Bosch's realm beneath the left hand of God, my fox legacy of human bonfire. Thank you. Yeah, again, there's this incredible turn in this poem um, from the things you've, the speaker finds in the house, you know, brown scraps of bedspread, cotton mm-hmm. batting, a rodent body, rodent turds. And then all of a sudden, poop, another <laughs> thing the speaker finds, you yeah, know, sure, yeah. it's a, it's something probably open in an art uh, catalog or in an art, uh, right. you know, in a book of yeah. paintings. Right. Um tiny white naked human creatures flip topsy-turvy to skewer down the ass and out the mouth in the primordial ooze that is manifestly the brimstone and bile of this book left open to Bosch's realm beneath the left hand of God. And we all have seen these Bosch's uh, paintings, I suppose, but just for those of us who have not, could could you just um, 
I mean, I guess you already did. But <laughs> could you just could you I'd like describe a little bit what kind of paintings he makes? Uh, well, there are books. Uh, he has a he has paintings of heaven, mm -hmm. and everybody's having a grand old time. <laughs> right, everyone's having a delightful heavenly time. Right. Um, mm -hmm. His paintings of hell are really ones. Uh, where people are being tortured in horrible ways. <laughs> so this is literally um, a description of at least one, if not more, of the poor creatures that end up in hell. Yeah, okay, so that turn, right, from the things in the room to the things in the book... Um, Okay, just walk me through sort of how that happened. Right. Well, after the literal stuff, <laughs> um, yeah, to open the book and to see this painting, see it, an illustration of this painting, um, but to also view this book that is foxed, right, that has uh, mold on it or what have you. Um, oh, that's what that means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's when a book is moldy or has damage. Uh -huh. um, so my legacy is this sort of damaged <laughs> book or damaged article. It's a damaged legacy, really. Yeah. Well, I found it also really, and maybe this is a really wrong interpretation. So, so you you tell me. But <laughs> I, I found that that turn, you know, where the Bosch painting gets sort of connected to this uh, mess in in the room, that it 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 brought in a lot of tenderness for the speaker's father's situation, um, because it sort of shows in a way the human condition to to me at least i felt like oh wow human beings have just sort of been creating a mess for themselves since you know time immemorial <laughs> uh, we just can't help ourselves you know mm -hmm. um, i like that i like that uh <laughs> suggestion so i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if you notice but um i decided to put the dedication page at the end of the book And it's the book is dedicated to my father. Yeah. Um, I did not want it in the beginning to color the poems I have about him. <laughs> I wanted the reader to know if they if they end up hitting that page um, that when all is said and done, he was a difficult man, and and uh, but when all is said and done, I. He's very important to me, and I loved him dearly. Yeah. 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 When did you, I mean, how long ago did you write that last sentence, My Fox Legacy of Human Bonfire? Um, I think I wrote it before he died, actually. He died only three and a half years ago. And so do you feel like this sentence has 
has become more true since he died? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, because my sister and I have gone through the house and we sold the house. So, uh, and I have things of his in storage. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and my poor daughters have already told me, Mom, we don't want it. Kimiko Han is the author of almost 15 collections of poetry, including The Unbearable Heart, which won an American Book Award, The Artist's Daughter, The Narrow Road to the Interior, Toxic Flora, Brain Fever, and Foreign Bodies, which came out just last year. Han is the winner of the Penn Volker Award for Poetry, the American Book Award, and the Shelley Memorial Award from the Poetry Society of America. She's also won fellowships from the New York Foundation for the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. She's taught workshops at organizations like Kave Kanem and Kundiman, and is a distinguished professor in creative writing and literary translation at Queens College. She lives in Queens with her husband and their terrier. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena Lichroth. And this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.